Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. Today is the day before Monica and I do the first bit of island hopping in the Canaries. We're based in or on the island of Tenerife, which is the biggest Canarian island. And for those of you not from Europe, it may not be immediately obvious. Tenerife is part of an island mass just off the west coast of Africa. And tomorrow, Monica and I are heading off to the third smallest of the eight islands and also the third least inhabited, La Gomera. 20,000 people on this tiny island. And it will feel, well, I think it's going to feel like we're riding over to the edge of the world here. Monica and I are packing up the bags, putting them onto the Bonneville and heading off for two days. We'll stay overnight there. We have, oh, we, we don't really have any idea what to expect. I'm so excited to get back on the bike for a little mini adventure. You know, there's something about packing up the bike, filling up the panniers and heading off for at least one night of an adventure. It just feels like, you just don't know what you're going to see, what, what you're going to explore, the adventures you're going to have. I just can't wait. And there's also something very special about riding onto a ferry and going to a new country or a new little island, in our case, tomorrow. It's, it's that incredible sense of adventure. You never forget it. I remember vividly every single motorcycle adventure that involves an overnight stay or getting onto a ferry. Of course, being in the UK, to see the really amazing roads, a lot of the time you have to get on a ferry, you have to go to mainland Europe, but I remember them all so well, whether it's going to France or Croatia, Holland for a long weekend, or of course going to Tenerife, just everything. I cannot wait, I'm so excited. So that's tomorrow, we'll head off at 7 a.m. The port is about probably about 30 minutes away, but we'll get there early to make sure we don't mess anything up with our bookings. Weather looks good. It's the land of eternal spring here in the Canaries, so you're pretty much guaranteed at least 16 degrees in the daytime in the cooler parts of the islands, and then about 23 in the warmer parts, so it should be brilliant. In this place, La Gomera, it looks a bit like an untouched island it's it's got such a tiny population there are so few roads and it really does look like it's never changed ever throughout history so i can't wait now then moving on what is going to happen to custom motorcycle culture this is an interesting point that i've i've been meaning to get to for a while and there were actually two people got in touch and they kind of echo the same thing, just slightly different angles they're coming from. Okay, listen to this. So what does all of this mean for custom motorcycle culture? By this, I mean the electrification of all vehicles, the, the incoming electrification of all vehicles, and also these new, new rules that may well be passed banning, at least in the UK, banning motorcycles to be modified, meaning that the only place, and I touched on this in a, an episode a few weeks ago, if this goes through and motorcycle modification is banned, then it means that the only way you can personalize your motorbike is from picking the 
the the options from each dealer so if i go to triumph i want a bonneville i will have to spec the bonneville in the exact way i want it you will not legally be allowed to modify your bike once you've purchased it so you've got that and you've also got the electrification of everything so i continue right where was i um what does it mean for motorcycle culture, custom culture, and traditional motorcycle culture in general? There's a spirit to motorcycles that's embodied by the combustion engine, the exhaust, the body, the mind, fully engaged with all of the outputs. I've never ridden an electric motorcycle, but food for thought. How does an electric future of motorcycles fare to what we know and love? And I'll get to that, but I'll also read out a second point that someone else sent me over. Let me find it. Here we go. Uh, this this is kind of on the same line. So I want to read them first out and then I'll discuss. Right, Freddie. So here's the deal. I've bought an Indian Scout Bobber this summer. Awesome bike. Aggressive and just beautiful. The thing is that since my youth, I love those old school bikes. The old twins like the XS650, the Yamaha SR500, the Kawasaki W650, and even the recent Royal Enfield Interceptor 650 like the guy from Bike Shed. Such an amazing machine. I think that these are bikes that you can restore and make some beautiful and unique machines with. And my heart, it's a little bit confused because I don't know if I should have bought an old soul motorcycle and made my own retro but restored um, motorcycle or if I should or should I modify my Scout Bobber. It's just that I think the Bobber, Scout Bobber is too modern for my taste. What are your thoughts on it? I get quite a few people sending messages along these lines and I find them incredibly interesting. It's really good because the Scout Bobber, it's one of my favorite bikes. I'm a gigantic fan. It's, I guess you'd describe it as a modern twist on an old school bike. It does, it's not, it's not Royal Enfield Interceptor out and out old school at all. It's got a very, very definite modern twist to it. And I do get it. That bike does seem a little bit harder to modify and maybe it has lost the old school charm if you compare it to the likes of the Interceptor and I always say it Royal Enfield are the only motorcycle brand at the moment that do genuinely old school character bikes Triumph anyone else they don't do it they do modern bikes traditionally styled but Royal Enfield have the heart of classic motorcycles and they're the only mass-produced biking brand that do it in my eyes and going on to what uh, the first rider kindly sent in you know, what's going to happen if we're no longer allowed to modify our bikes and what's going to happen when everything's electrified? And I remember when I tested out the Royal, the Royal Enfield, the Harley Davidson Livewire, I remember thinking, you know, th this is good. If this is the future, I'm happy with it. You know, it rides smoothly. It's still fun to ride. It's a good bike. But then when I look back and I have time to process it, yeah, I do think that, you know, that soul, at least on that bike, has disappeared. It has. It's a good bike and it's fun to ride. But soul? No. No, it doesn't have soul. And it took me a few weeks to process that. Uh, can other motorcycle manufacturers come along and insert some of that soul into an electric bike like in my mind the Livewire hasn't been able to do? You know, when I get on the Livewire... It, it doesn't give me that 
that vibe that I really need when I get on a motorbike. I love that classic, that vintage vibe, you know, the, the feeling, the soul, as they say. Uh, so, so what's going to happen? First of all, if we look at it, what is going to happen to these custom motorcycle brands? These are the brands that sell, for example, aftermarket exhausts, aftermarket kits, handlebars, uh, mirrors, etc., etc., engine modification stuff that I don't understand. Well, th these will go out of business then, surely, if this is banned. Uh, if, this, if there's a widespread ban on modifying your motorbikes, like it sounds like there will be, these will all disappear. So what are we left with if they disappear? Well, if they disappear, then surely there's one booming industry that will also disappear. Because in the UK, there's an industry around biking that is s booming so much that waiting lists are sometimes a year and a half, and that is custom motorcycle shops. These are, in the UK, it's just insane how much they've exploded over the past, probably, let's say in reality, maybe four or five years. These custom motorcycle shops are popping up all over the place. Once they've popped up, they're having to move to bigger premises to expand because they're getting so many orders in. I've spoken to a few over the summer. They are all fully booked, all of them fully booked, all of them could do with more staff, could increase their premises size. It is booming so much, the waiting lists are off the scale. If this ban comes into place to ban custom motorcycles, you will then lose all of these custom bike shops. That is a very, very big deal. And if you lose all of these custom bike shops, does that mean you lose the adjoining coffee shops that are popping up because that's a huge thing that's booming. Coffee shops in the UK, I'm sure it's everywhere. We love coffee shops. We used to love going to the pub in the UK. We now love coffee shops and I'm, I'm the biggest sucker for that. I addicted, I'll go seven times a week to a coffee shop, right off to a coffee shop. I love it, I love it more than anyone. What will happen to those shops? It, it's, it's a bit unthinkable for me actually to think, where, where would we be as bikers without this custom culture? And it's not like I'm a huge one into customizing my bikes. I'm not, I know nothing about really engines or anything like that. I just enjoy riding a bike and buying a few easy to fit custom parts from the likes of Motone or Tech Bike Parts. You know, every brand has, has different aftermarket companies that work best with them. For Triumph, it's Motone and it's Tech Bike Parts. But you know, what's gonna happen to this? Everyone I know, everyone has customized their bike without fail. It's a bit unthinkable for me to think that we're going to lose that culture. So if that happens, uh, you know, if it's banned, if custom bike culture is banned, you, if you can no longer legally ride your motorcycle, if it's been modified, and if it's in any way deviating from the manufacturer's specifications, it'll be a sad day. 100% it'll be a sad day. And with regards to the electrification, what's going to happen to that? Well, I, I chatted about this a couple of weeks ago. I think, I really think we're 20 years away from worrying about that with motorbikes. I really do. I don't think there's any real concern in the near or medium future. I really, really don't after looking into it as much as possible. So I don't think the electrification is an issue at all. But when it does come around, 
I hope, what I hope is once electrification of motorbikes comes around and it's mass market, I hope that these big brands, especially the ones I really like, for example, the the Harley Davidsons, the, the Triumphs, the Royal Enfields, these types of bike manufacturers that make the modern classics, I really, really hope that they don't just make a, a super modern spaceship style motorbike. I hope... I hope that if, for example, the Bonneville, they make a bike that looks exactly the same as the Triumph Bonneville, just with an electric engine. I mean, when they went from, it's not as big a change, when the Bonneville, for example, they went from a carburetted engine to a fuel injection engine, they kept the engine style the same. And within, I think it's called, is it the carb heads or something? They just hid the injectors. So they, they made it look like the it's still a carburetted engine, but they just cleverly disguised all the the electricals and made them look like they were carbs something like that i don't know i'm not technical enough but my point is it can be done i'm sure but they need to be making classic style bikes that appeal to bikers i know that the live wire will appeal to appeal to a lot of bikers um, because a lot of bikers they really like the you know the more sporty futuristic look and i get that 100 percent. i'm only talking about my personal preference i hope that they do these modern classic style bikes that really appeal to bikers i'm i'm interested to see what will happen um and i hope i really really hope the custom scene isn't killed off by whatever government in whatever country but i'll, I'll be keeping a close eye on this right devastating new car tax charges in london god this is just a massive massive downer today i'm talking about uh, but i had to read this out someone sent this to me and apologies i can't remember who but i found this very interesting i know it's from london but it's sometimes a sign of things to come london's ultra low emission zone was expanded at the end of october to include most of greater london charging drivers with non-compatible cars 12 pounds 50 to drive in the area in addition to the ulez the congestion charge remains in operation for drivers charging 15 pounds so what we have at the moment in london 15 pounds to drive into the ultra low emission zone that's 15 pounds then £12.50 for non-compatible cars to drive into the congestion charge. That is £27.50 to get into London if you don't have a compatible car. And then the Mayor of London is proposing a £3.50 additional fee for anyone in London, I think, as far as I can tell, for anyone in London just driving around London in general. So that would take the total to, I think, 20, uh, 17, 27, 50, 30, 50, £31. £31 to drive your vehicle into London. Hmm. That's painful. So basically what's happening is that considering on top of the ULES charge of I think £12.50 and then on top of the congestion charge of £15 another £3.50 charge just for anyone driving around London in general uh, because they need to generate I think something like half a billion pounds more it's the way it's going and the thing is with this it the truth is it doesn't matter if you get an electric car really because the government will not reward you medium to long term for owning an electric car and i'm not bashing electric vehicles i know it has to happen to protect the environment but if you go out and you buy an electric vehicle whether it's a car or a motorbike and you think yes 
save my money, no congestion charge in London, and no road tax. Well, yeah, that's really good. And that will last, I would say, for a, a few more years, but no more than a few more years, because the government won't see everyone moving over to electric vehicles and go over and shake your hand and say, thank you for that. It doesn't matter that we've lost millions upon millions of pounds a year in tax revenue. That's fine. We're just so happy that the, the country's now clean. No, they, they don't care deep down. They, they, what they need is revenue. Above all else, the government needs revenue. So eventually, electric vehicles, electric cars, whether it's for annual road tax or if it's for congestion charge or ultra low emission zone charging, it won't matter in a few years if you've got an electric or petrol car. You're going to be charged regardless because the government needs the money. And that's just the way it is. That's just a fact. They need their tax money from everyone and they will not sit back while tax revenue is reduced by electrification of vehicles. Absolutely 100% not in my mind. Uh, okay, here we go. A car that I really like and it's in Tenerife everywhere but in in england in the uk we don't get it because we like defenders and that is the old land cruiser uh and i've been showing them a lot of my youtube videos and someone said to me an owner of a land cruiser he said on that old land cruiser freddie you forgot to mention that it's got a fiberglass roof meaning that you can remove it completely and make an open top style jeep i've got the same 70 series model it's a straight six liter 4.2 engine uh, from 1990 with 360,000 kilometers on the clock. Such a pleasure to, to drive. And then I said, because a few people freaked me out, I said, how are they on the rust front? Because a few people said, look, these old Japanese vehicles, they rust like crazy. Although to be fair to the Japanese vehicles, I think most vehicles from 1980s and earlier rusted like absolute crazy. Uh, so I said, how are they on the rust front? And he replied, we used these vehicles while I lived in Africa for 27 years. Some had well over 500,000 kilometers on the clock and still going strong. On mine, completely no rust at all on the chassis, just a bit on the sills behind the doors where the snow and ice packs in. I'm up in the mountains in Japan now. Otherwise, rock solid. You know, I like cars and I also like hearing directly from the owners because sometimes cars a bit like these i think this is 1990s maybe late 80s land cruiser and i would think oh come on that that's going to rust away but no and there's no reason why it would rust away any worse than for example a land rover defender i'm sure although the defenders aren't exactly known to be rust free apart from the body the body on the defenders is aluminium so that's fine but the chassis will disintegrate pretty quickly i've heard okay right right this this is absolute breaking news here harley davidson survey and I, i'll be completely honest i'm checking as i speak as you know once every week or two i like to do a survey of different motorbikes to see what you as owners really rate in motorbikes so i ask two questions would you describe your bike as reliable and would you buy another bike Today, it's Harley Davidson, the first American brand I've done, and I have no idea what to expect. And hand on heart, I still don't have the, the results in front of me. I'm going to read the current leaderboard and tell you where Harley sits, and I'll do it absolutely live right now. So, current leaderboard. Would you describe your bike as reliable? 
Number one out of the first four I've done so far. Number one, Triumph. Yes, 89% of Triumph owners said yes, they would describe their Triumph as reliable. Number two, Yamaha. 87% of people said yep, they'd describe it as reliable. Number oh, joint second, BMW, also 87%. Number three, Royal Enfield. 73% of people said yes. And number four, Ducati. Very low, 53% of Ducati owners said they described their bikes as reliable. Next question, would you buy another? Number one, Triumph. Yes, 87% of Triumph owners said they would buy another Triumph. Second place, Yamaha, 84%. Third place, BMW, 78%. Fourth, Royal Enfield, 67%. And fifth, just so much lower, so much lower than everyone else. Ducati, yes, 52%. So, live, right now. How has Harley Davidson done? Because it's 23 hours in to the 24-hour survey, so that's enough. I'm just going on to my Instagram stories. Would you describe your Harley Davidson as reliable? Wow, my mind's blown. I wasn't expecting this. Would you describe your Harley Davidson as reliable? The results in 59%. 59% of Harley Davidson owners said yes, they would describe their Harley Davidson as reliable. Next. Oh, this is. Oh, dear. Would you buy another Harley Davidson? Yes, 51%. 51% of Harley-Davidson owners said they would buy another Harley. So we've got 59 and 51%. That means... That means that on the leaderboard, it would be second from bottom for... Would you describe your bike as reliable? Harley-Davidson would be second from bottom. It would be below Royal Enfield at 73%. And it would sit at 59%, just 6% above Ducati. And then would you buy another? Harley Davidson would be absolute rock bottom. 1% behind Ducati. Wow, well, that's eye-opening. Okay, let me just check what insight people have given me here. Okay, so I said if you've got any extra insight, give it to me, please. Okay, great fun on the open roads, not urban machines. In traffic, they're too loud for me, but I enjoyed the love affair. My 883 used to vibrate major bolts off uh, itself almost every ride. Hogs are different kind of ride. Not nimble, not graceful, but full of guts and glory. Uh, my specific model, the Sportster 883, doesn't handle very good for a modern bike, but definitely reliable. Uh, someone else, they're dear to buy new ones, dear to maintain old ones, but but they make you smile and are fun to ride. Someone else, you know most of... The, mm, yeah, this is interesting. You know most of the answers to this poll will be from non-Harley Davidson owners. See, this is, this is a point. It's a bit like when I did the poll for Triumph. You know, a lot of a lot of people, I think two or three people said to me, yeah, but Freddie, most people who follow you may be Harley, uh, may be Triumph owners. Uh, yes, that may be true, but could it give more scope that if there are more people voting, maybe they're negative? I don't know. You know, like it just because there are more people voting, it doesn't mean that they'll be voting all in a positive way at all. 
uh, it doesn't mean, for example, that the BMW people voting on my polls will, for example, um, have a, a more mixed bag of feelings towards their BMWs than Triumph owners do. So I, th I actually think it's probably a fairly level playing field. But to address this, most you know most of the answers to this poll will be from non-Harley Davidson owners, la crying laughing face. It's a fair point. Harley Davidson polarizes like no other biking brand. Um, but I have to take it for what it is. I have to take it for what it is. Let me read out a few more comments because a lot of these comments, you know, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be getting comments and input from Harley riders. Will there be some non-Harley owners and non-ex-Harley owners? Maybe, but I have to take it at face value. Uh, other people said they're expensive, perhaps not great value, but the styling uh, and American made is a good thing. Someone else can't compete with Japanese technology, but rely on style instead. Someone else, there are better options. Someone else, great for aftermarket customizing. Someone else, unique, overpriced, not just a bike, a way of life. Love it. They're great bikes, but with a very restrictive use, and that's sometimes a bit annoying. My dad's friend has one, and it's really... and. My dad's friend has one and it's already on its second engine, only two years old and under 10,000 kilometers. My 2016 Roadster is a dream ride, no issues in five years, handles brilliantly. The urban myth of Harleys breaking down is because there are a lot of very old Harleys. Uh, when you need parts, it takes years and they are, and they also disassemble themselves. Interesting. Part, and then someone else contrasting that parts are easy to find older models have tons of mods and then final one uh, they might they might lack some tech but they're fun to ride uh, but they're fun as hell to ride that, that's disappointing results from Harley would it stop me buying one it would definitely make me think carefully before I buy one. It would make me think slightly longer before I bite the bullet just to make sure I'm in a good financial position to be able to look after it because it seems without question that they are a lot to buy and also maintain and maybe they're not the most reliable bikes in the world and when they break down they will hit your bank harder than most. So yes, I would have to make sure I'm in a, a good comfortable position. I remember my neighbour from Belvedere, he had a, an 883 Sportster and I'd chat to him often when we were both down in the bike shed and this is the 883 Sportster from 2001-2002, the entry level Harley, the absolute entry level Harley and he always said it is very expensive to maintain um, and actually the engine blew up on that um, and that's on the entry level one so even if you look at a Sportster with an 883 engine for example don't expect it to be super cheap to maintain because I don't think it will be uh, but that does bring me on to having a look it's not a ringing endorsement but I, I still want a Harley so I want to see what's out there and I'll be completely honest that I went back on to Cycle Trader USA and I looked at Harley Davidson's for sale in the US in Florida where it's nice and warm and probably won't they won't rust too much but I don't know I don't know if it's the exchange rates that's changing but for Harley Davidson's at least they're not that much cheaper than 
the UK even. And once you've done the, the import duties, the shipping and stuff, there's no money in it. You know, there's no point with all the hassle. You're really not going to be saving any money at all. I don't know if the days of shipping from the US are over, uh, maybe for certain vehicles, but I just seem to remember it, it made more sense a few years ago. You know, buying a Harley Davidson in the US and then shipping it to the UK. But now, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of iffy. I've seen a few vehicles good value, but Harley Davidson's... Uh, from the 10 minutes looking I was doing just now, it, it doesn't look like it's worthwhile value from a value point of view. It's, it's a bit borderline. So you probably need 30% in shipping. So I'm looking in the UK and I'm looking to see what I can get for under about 7K. And it must be... For this search, it's got to be 2010, so I can, you know, get by with, the, you know, this new E10 fuel coming out and all of the congestion charge. I want to be able to forget about that stuff and have a free ride without paying that stuff. So I need 2010 onwards. And I'm actually a bit surprised at what I found. I found a 2013 Harley-Davidson Sports, the XL 1200 on auto trader bike trader 2013 model 14,000 miles on the clock and it looks absolutely beautiful it's got a really nice comfy seat for two it's got a backrest it's got that little sissy bar on the back as well so you can chuck some luggage on and i love a bike with a backrest monica always says it the most important thing on a motorbike maybe maybe apart from a super comfy seat but i mean super comfy seat but probably the number one for monica for absolutely relaxed chilled out rides on the back is a backrest because that means that she doesn't need to constantly be concentrating on the back so backrest is a game changer and this bike has it and it's got this big chunky wheels and it looks brilliant and it's six thousand 388 pounds and it's from a dealership as well it gets really good reviews so let's say you can get that down to six thousand pounds and it's only seven it's only eight years old i think i think that's an incredible deal get that on finance for example you're not going to be paying much more than a hundred pounds a month or so maybe do 200 to pay it off quicker let me do one more but that's six thousand pounds for a really nice eight-year-old Harley Davidson Sportster. I'm pleasantly surprised. And of course now we're out of biking season. So right now is the time to get your dream bike. This is the time to get it. Don't wait until the spring. It's too late then. God, I'm tempted looking at this. Oh, I, I want to do one more Harley, but I don't want to mess up. I want to choose the best one as a, a way to wrap up the podcast. Okay. Oh, I'd buy this. Harley-Davidson Sportster 1200 Custom XL. All in black. Really nice comfy seat. Backrest. Huge, chunky tyres. Those really fat, old-school looking tyres. Not like they look from the 40s or 50s. Chrome engine. Twin chrome exhaust on the right-hand side. Really mean, aggressive, assertive-looking bike. No plastic on it at all, just that tiny single headlamp there. And it looks it, it looks like a brand new Harley. You wouldn't tell it's not straight out of the show in this one. It, do you know, it tempts me. I've never ridden a Harley Sportster in my life, ever. And I am genuinely hand on heart tempted here. 
that you can get that you know, 6,700, let's say six and a half K for a stunningly nice Sportster. It's got me thinking. It really has actually, possibly more so than any other bike. And it's got that really cool sissy bar on the back where you've got the nice padding for the pillion, but also it goes a bit higher. The rear sissy bar it goes up into a point. It just looks really mean. I'm going to be having a look at that. I'll leave it there. And genuinely, I'm going to be looking into this in more detail. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast episode. I will see you in the next one. Have a brilliant week. And next week when I speak to you, we'll be back from La Gomera. And I'll tell you all about it. 